Okay, Luke chapter uh, 19. I do have one more quick announcement before I, I go into our study this morning. Um, <clears throat> some of you may know that uh, if you've been around to our men's group and other uh, home group stuff that we've been doing, that we've been praying for my aunt, a lady by the name of Sue. And uh, my aunt Sue has been on a liver donor list for a while now. And we've been praying for her to uh, have God provide a donor for her. And um, so far, no one has, has uh, come forward <clears throat> or, or uh, no one's been able to, who has died, has been able to, to provide a, a, a liver for her. But through these last several months of, of praying for her and knowing her need, um, I've been going through the process of seeing if I was a match to be able to donate my liver to her. And, and I am. And I've gone through um, some of the testing and had some of the lab work done. And I go on October 30th, or uh, yeah, October 30th to Salt Lake City, Utah, to the transplant hospital there to have some clinical tests done. And um, it looks like. I'm going to be able to be a, a live a liver donor uh, for her. And um, if everything goes fine on the clinicals on the 30th of October, then on November 19th, um, I will have liver uh, transplant surgery. The liver is one of the organs where they can cut a portion of it out and, and it'll regenerate. Um, and so that's a pretty amazing thing that God, God can do and in that. So I, I'm letting you know that for a couple of reasons. Number one, let's pray for God's will for, for uh, me and my family and that uh, if this is God's will, that the clinicals would go well. Um, and if not, then that God would close the doors for that and then God would provide a donor for her in another way. And then also, I um, just wanted to let you know as a church, because if I have the surgery, uh, it's full abdominal surgery, and I will be um, out of commission for a while, several weeks. And during that time, Curtis will be um, overseeing the church along with the elder, elder board, and we'll have a few maybe guest speakers come while I'll be gone. So I wanted to let you guys know that's coming up for prayer and just kind of let you know where we're going as a church in regards to if I'm not around, you know why. So I'll keep you guys informed after <clears throat> I have the clinicals done where they clear me or disqualify me, whatever they're going to do there for that. So, all right, Luke chapter 19, we're going to be in verse 45 this morning. Um, last week, um, as we were, we've been spending a few weeks through the, the, going through the gospel of Luke right now in, in this particular chapter, and last week we read about Jesus riding into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey as the crowds of people who were gathered there for the Passover feast and his disciples who had been following him as they, they laid down their clothes and their palm branches, the, the, palms, the, the branches of the palm trees in front of him. As Jesus made this triumphal entry into Jerusalem and his disciples cried out saying, Hosanna, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And we know that Jesus had allowed for his disciples to do this even though the Pharisees had called to him from the crowd, and demanded that Jesus tell his disciples to be quiet. He, he, they rebuked him, saying, tell your, tell your disciples to be quiet. And, and I love it that Jesus said, even if I did, the rocks would cry out and, and, and make this proclamation, this declaration of who I am. <clears throat> and, and Jesus said this because this day that we read about last week and studied about last week was unlike any other day. And when Jesus rode into Jerusalem and presented himself, to the nation of Israel, it was the day that God had appointed. That's why it was unlike any other. 
In fact, this specific day and these specific events that we, we read about, they had been made known to the world through the prophecies of Daniel, the prophet Daniel, hundreds of years before. And Daniel had foretold these events that we read about in the Gospel of Luke nearly 600 years prior to them taking place. And, and, and um, they were made known to Daniel why he was still in Babylonian captivity. And God had spoken to Daniel through the angel Gabriel and told him of the exact day, the exact day that the Messiah would come. And God told Daniel this because Daniel had been praying for the future of the nation of Israel. He had been in, 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 in Babylonian captivity along with the Hebrew people. And, and um, Daniel had read from the book of, of Jeremiah, the prophecies of Jeremiah, said, hey, God's going to take us captive. The Syrians, Babylonians are going to take us captive. Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. Dan, uh, Jeremiah prophesied about these things, but he said that God told him that their captivity was going to be for 70 years. Well, Daniel had been taken into Babylonian captivity when he was a very young man. And, and he knew that the 70-year period of time that he had read about in the book of Jeremiah was coming to the end. And so he was calling out to God, Daniel, a godly man, going, Lord, what about the future of our, of our people? What, what is it in store for us? And, and God revealed some very specific things to Daniel, first of all, confirming that they were going to be released from captivity. God also told him that, that the, the, the city of Jerusalem and the temple itself would be reconstructed. And God told him more specifically of the exact, the exact day that the Messiah would come. It would be revealed to the Hebrew people. In doing so, God had told Daniel that there would be a decree, or that when the decree to rebuild the, the walls of Jerusalem... When that decree was given, God told Daniel that 483 years, or 173,880 days, okay, the exact day, that 483 years, or 173,880 days, would pass before the Messiah would come. From the, from the decree to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem until the coming of the Messiah, the Lord said, God told Daniel, this is how much time will pass. And history teaches us that the official decree, both biblical history and secular history, by the way, they both affirm this. It teaches us that this decree to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem at this time was given on March 14th, 445 B.C. by a man by the name of King Artaxerxes, King Artaxerxes, King of Persia. And, and it was not by chance that exactly 173,880 days from the decree to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, that that amount of days later on April 6th, 32 AD, in fulfillment of this prophecy given to Daniel that Jesus rode into Jerusalem and presented himself to the nation of Israel. It's astounding. And, and in that moment, because of this prophecy, because it was the appointed day, Jesus allowed the people to publicly proclaim him to be their Messiah, the King who had come in the name of the Lord. Nevertheless, on this day of fulfilled prophecy, this triumphal day, when the people in the crowd were rejoicing, when they were, when they were praising God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, what we're told at the, in what we read about last week in verses 42 through 44, 44 is what we're told is that, that, Jesus, that Jesus wept on this day. 
On this day when he drew near to Jerusalem, Jesus wept because he knew that the nation would ultimately reject him and that that their rejection would usher in again another destruction of the city of Jerusalem, a destruction of the temple which took place in 70 A.D., and then, of course, another dispersion of God's people as their enemies would be permitted to surround them on every side. And we know that that dispersion lasted until 1948 when the Jewish people were really brought back into the land during our, our, our time, our generation, if you will. And um, uh, God gave them back the land, brought them back into land, and we see that even taking place today, which was also uh, a fulfillment of prophecy. Now, after Jesus had made this triumphal entry into Jerusalem, we're told in the other gospel accounts that he spent the rest of this first day going around the city of Jerusalem and looking at different things. And he even went into the temple. And, and it was significant because there were people gathered there at this time from all over to come and celebrate the Passover feast. And we're told then in the other gospel accounts that because the hour was late, that Jesus took the 12 apostles and he returned to Bethany the place where he had originally, on the east side of the Mount of Olives, right? Bethany, the place where Lazarus and, 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 and Mary and Martha were at, and he stayed the night there with them. But that next morning, Jesus arose early in the morning, and, and he returned to Jerusalem, and he began to deal with what he had previously seen on that, on that day before. So when Jesus entered Jerusalem in the second day, he, according to verse 45, look with me now, verse 45 through 48, it says, Then he went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying to them, It is written, My house is a house of prayer but you have made it a den of thieves. And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him, and they were unable to do anything for all the people were very attentive to hear. Let's pray. Lord, I ask God that we would be attentive to hear this morning as you teach us, as you reveal yourself to us, as you make your will known to us, Father. May we have ears to hear. And may we have a heart to submit to you that would be submitted to you. Father, teach us by your spirit today. Teach us through your word, which is truth. Lord, we we profess and believe your word to be truth. And so, Father, have your way with us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, whom we love and believe. Amen. Now, When you look at the, the chronological event of things, which I kind of laid out, and, and, and we remember that the Hebrew people at this time, when they, were, when they were declaring Jesus to be the Messiah and his disciples, they were looking for someone to take the throne and to rule and reign and overthrow the Roman, Roman Empire. And so if that was the case, we might expect that Jesus, when he would come back into the city, having been declared the king, the one who was sent by God, that he would go and set up his throne, right? Maybe raise up an army to come and overthrow the Roman government. And, 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 and that would be the natural course of events based upon the expectations that the people had of him at this time. Nevertheless, these actions of Jesus on this very next day in the temple should have been another clue to them and, and also to us that he did not come at that time to save the nation from Roman rule. No throne was established, no no armies were raised, but rather Jesus had come, as we see here, in a revelation of the true ministry, uh, ministry of God that still goes on today, is that Jesus had come to restore the things of God back to God. And that's what he was doing here at the temple. 
As he was driving these money changers out. He came to restore the things of God back to God. And this was the second time that Jesus had gone into the temple and had cleared house, if you will, by driving out those who were, who were buying and, and selling uh, things in, in this holy house of God in the temple. And in John chapter 2 is the first record of this. And, and we know that it was three years prior to this event on the exact same kind of day on Passover during the Feast of Passover. And it was the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Yet in both of these instances, in both of these instances, the religious leaders had taken the temple and were using it for a monetary gain, to get rich. That's what we're told. And they were doing this by taking advantage of those who had come to worship God. Now, the temple was divided into multiple sections. When we studied through the book of Exodus several months ago, we, we did a, a, an in-depth study of the temple, of the construction of the temple and what it looked like, um, specifically the tabernacle of that time in Exodus, but it was as a foretelling, a picture of the temple when it was eventually built as a permanent structure. And it had the same... It had the same God-given blueprints, if you will. But there was multiple sections, and each section had restrictions on, on who could and could not go into it. Different courts, different places, um, even as, as we know that, that in the Holy of the Most Holies, only one person was ever allowed to go in there, and it was only once a year, and that was the high priest. Well, all throughout the temple and, 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 and in its courts, there were these divisions that were set up for people who could and could not go into. And the outer court, which we're reading about here, um, was called the Court of the Gentiles. And it was the only place in the temple that the Gentiles could go to, literally meaning anyone who was not a descendant of Abraham. That would be pretty much all of us, pretty much. And, and, and that's the place that we would be permitted to go if, if we were going to go and worship in that day or we wanted to know about the, the God of the Hebrew people. And so for those who were seeking to know or coming to worship uh, the God uh, of the Hebrews, the Gentiles, this is where they were at. And in fact, what we're told, what we know is that if a Gentile went beyond this court, beyond this place, then their punishment was death. It was a serious deal. And, and, and this court of the Gentiles was intended to be a place, it was intended to be a place where the Hebrew people could witness to the people from all these other nations and tell them about their God, the one true and living God. It was to be a holy place, you see? But instead of being, being devoted to, perhaps as we might see it, evangelism, as, as it was this opportunity to tell unbelievers about their God, as, as this place was, was devoted to evangelism, instead of that, what we're told, instead of being a house of prayer for all nations, this court had been turned into a religious marketplace by the religious leaders. By the religious leaders. They, just hadn't, they weren't just permitting it or allowing it. They're the ones that had established it. And the religious leaders, in doing so, were getting rich off of those who had come to seek God. And in order to enter the temple, we know that there was a tax that you had to pay. One Israeli shekel had to be paid. No other currency was accepted when it came to paying this tax. And this is because all other currency, especially most at this time in this region, which was Roman currency, had the face of Caesar on it. And Caesar at this time declared himself to be God. It was a, this false God on the face of the money, and they would not allow it in, in paying the temple tax or any other kind of, of pagan money as well. 
uh, Gentile money because it always had the, 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 their, their king, their pagan king on it. And so they've seen it as defiled. And, and so only the Israeli shekel was, was allowed to pay this tax to enter into the temple. And so the religious leaders, knowing this, they thought, aha, we're going to seize the opportunity. And they did in an ungodly way. And the religious leaders had set up money changing tables in this court of the Gentiles in order to convert the foreign currency, right, of those who traveled from all abroad of Israel and beyond even the borders of Israel to come to the Passover feast. They would convert their money to shekels so that they could pay the tax, so that they could come and enter and worship. And, and, of course, this in and of itself was not an abomination as they were providing a service, but the fact that they were doing it as an, in an unfair exchange rate was an abomination, and that's what was going on. There was no other real options for people at this point to do, and so they were being charged unfair rates of exchange. In addition to this, the religious leaders were also selling animals, the animals that were needed for the sacrifices, at an unfair and inflated price as well to those who would travel from afar and could not bring an animal with them. If you remember, the Passover feast, the sacrifice was a lamb. It had to be an unspotted lamb, an unblemished lamb, one without a birth defect or one without any kind of injury, no scar, no nothing. And, 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 and it was very difficult for people to travel with these sacrifices. And even if they did, then you, you risked, you know, what if your, your, your lamb or your sheep that you were bringing got injured on the way and then you'd have to buy a new one when you got there anyway. And so most people wouldn't make the journey with their sacrifice. They'd show up to buy one. Well, the Pharisees had this whole business scheme going on where they raised these, these, the shepherds in the fields. Most people even think that the shepherds that were in the fields on the night when Jesus was born, that they were overseeing the, the lambs that were the Pharisees. They were shepherds of that. And that's speculation. Uh, I don't know why I told you that, but other than to say is they had this whole business plan going on. And so when Passover would come, they would sell their lambs to people who were coming to sacrifice and to worship God. And of course, then they were like, well, this one's spotted, it's unblemished, but it's going to cost you, right? And, 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 uh, and, and that's what was going on. And these things, really, guys, these things that the religious leaders were doing were not only occupying space that was devoted for those who could come and worship God and seek to know God. What they were doing is, is they were setting up roadblocks that made it difficult for people to come and worship God. And it angered God. And when there are roadblocks that are set up by religious men today that hinders people from coming to God, it still angers him. And it should anger us when it takes place as well. In light of this, we who are Christians should realize that we're called to be a help to people. We're called to lead them to the place where they can have a grace based relationship with God, and they too can enter into the worship of him. We need to be facilitators. We need to assist that. We need to make it easy for those things to take place, for those who are coming to seek and know God. In fact, guys, when we consider that, we should remember that the words we speak and the way that we live our lives are perhaps the greatest things that either can facilitate people in coming to know the Lord and worship him or hinder them in that they can become roadblocks. The words we speak and the way we live our lives can become really roadblocks to those who are seeking to know God. Today, roadblocks, just like the actions of the religious leaders, were roadblocks back then. The Apostle Peter kind of gives us a warning about this in 2 Peter chapter, verses, chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. And he says this, he says, He says, My dear brothers and sisters, 
He says, you are foreigners and aliens here. And I love that. Because this is a reminder, this is not our home, is it? We're, we, are, we are citizens of a heavenly kingdom. And, and, and we're just passing through this life into the next. But he says, when we realize this, when we understand this, then we should consider some things. Dear brothers and sisters, you are foreigners and aliens here. He says, so I warn you to keep away from evil desires because they, fly, they fight against your very souls. Keep away from evil desires because they fight against your very soul. He says, be careful how you live among your unbelieving neighbors. In other words, those who are yet not citizens of this kingdom that we're a part of, be careful how we live among our unbelieving neighbors. Because Peter knew, they're watching us. He says, even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will believe and give honor to God when he comes to judge the world. And so the way we live and the way and the words that we speak have an influence on those around us. And the call and the reminder is, is to not be a hindrance, to not set up roadblocks by the words we speak and the way we live our lives like these religious leaders were doing. The bottom line is that the religious leaders' job, their job was to facilitate in the worship of God. That was what their job was. And that's what God's called us to do. That's even what Isaac was speaking about. We're called to be kingdom builders while we're here waiting to go home. To facilitate, to help people in the worship of God. This is what these religious leaders were called to do. Not only help in the worship of God, but help people to grow in their knowledge and understanding of who God is and make it possible for people to do so. To come to know him and to come to worship him. But clearly, as we read here, this is not what was happening. And instead of praying for the people, you know, like this, the religious leaders, they were praying on them, seeking to take advantage of them. And so when Jesus went into the temple and he witnessed these things, he, according to verse 45, he drove out those who bought and sold in it. And in our own lives, guys, God wants to drive out those things that are a hindrance to people around us, to drive them out. And in doing so, Jesus, according to verse 46, he quoted from the book of Isaiah, also from a passage in Jeremiah chapter 7, Isaiah chapter 56, and Jeremiah chapter 7. It's, it's a quote from both of these places. And he said, God's house, which would to be a house of prayer, had been turned into a den for thieves. Now think about it. I mean, talk about a contrast. This holy place that was to be a house of prayer, this house of God, he said that the religious leaders had turned it literally into a den for thieves. I was sharing with the first service that I'm always reminded when I think about that, about Alibaba and the 40 thieves. My kids used to have this like cartoon, and, and uh, I remember watching it with them, and they would, Alibaba would go and rob with his, with his thieves, and he'd come back, and there was this cave with the hidden door, and he would be like, you know, um, open sesame, and, and the magic door would open, and they would be able to get away from, from the people who they had robbed these, and, and be hidden in, in relationship to these evil things that they had done. And, and, and Jesus said, this is what you've done with the house of God. You turn it into a den for thieves. And a den for thieves is a place where thieves run to hide after they've committed their wicked deeds. And the point is, these religious leaders were using, were using the services of the holy temple to cover up 
their sin. In other words, they were trying to hide their sins with the disguises of doing something religious or holy. And that's a sick thing. But before we point our figure of judgment and condemn them too harshly, I think we should examine ourselves to see and look, is this something that we do? Is this something that we've done? Do we put an outward appearance of righteousness and yet we are filled with dead men's bones because we have unconfessed sin or unholy and righteous living that we're pursuing? And yet we walk around maybe with our Bibles and we come to church on Sunday and, and you know, all these religious outward holy things that, that, that we, can, we can put outwardly to give an appearance of, but yet inwardly there's, there's no life. And you know what? God wants to drive that out again because that's not good for us and it's not good for those around us. And the point is, is when we sin, guys, and when we do something that is evil, we can't hide behind the holy, holy things of God in order to justify what we're doing or what we have done. God says he desires holiness, purity on the inside. In short, uh, we cannot call an evil thing good. In fact, the Bible speaks a warning against this. And I think this is so, such a, an applicable warning because not only for our lives today, but because in the world we live in, is it not a world that calls evil things as good right now? When we're talking about the, the youth in, in young life and the bridge and other things, you know, if you're in, if you go and see and spend some time with the kids that are, are growing up right now, th- this is different than when you and I were growing up. When I was growing up, I clearly knew, societally speaking, that certain things were wrong. Okay? This was good and this is evil. My problem is I just chose to do the evil things. I did, knowing that they were not good. And, and, and the thing about it today is, is our youth are being told these things that the God clearly says are not good for you, that are, that are, that are evil. The, the world is going, oh, the, what does God know? What, 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 is, what are these things? These things are good. Don't, don't, you know, what might be good for you um, may not be good for the other, and what may not be good for the other may be good for you. This whole sense of moral relativism that goes on. It's even worse than that. It's not even moral relativism as, as so much as, as, it, as it used to be as it is now. We're just the, the pure evil things that God says evil is evil. The world is saying, oh, it's good. And our kids are growing up in this culture, in this society with this kind of confusion. And if they don't have the moral compass that we have, we don't have God's word to, to be a, 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 a rudder of truth for them. They don't know what to believe. They don't know where to go. They don't know what to build their lives upon. And, and God says he despises this. In Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20, he says, he says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And, 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 and again, I was sharing with the first service a little bit about this passage. The thing that really stands out to me the most in regards to understanding it is this, this bitter for sweet and this sweet for bitter. And that's kind of funny, the story about the raw chicken. I mean, I, I, I bet you that middle schoolers are weird. If you're a middle schooler, you're weird. I know you guys are in here. Yeah, we love you. <laughs> but but um, he probably thought he would get in something good. Oh, that looks good. He picked up that piece of raw chicken, and I'm sure Isaac and Hope were like, ah, you know. Well, not to mention any names, there's, I've been on this keto diet for a long time now, and I don't eat any carbs. Well, there's this lady in the church here. I called her out on first service by name. But, but she tried telling me that these cookies she made that were like keto-friendly cookies were good. And, and you know what? They were peanut butter cookies, and they looked like a peanut butter cookie. 
You're giving yourself away. They don't. I'm telling you right now. It's an abomination. You, you put that in your mouth and it's like, this is not a cookie. Talk about false representation. Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Right? It might have been Stephanie. I don't know. <laughs> but guys, seriously, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. And man, man, that cannot be going on in our hearts. This is what these Pharisees were doing. You know, with this, this, this attitude of, oh, we're just helping people out. You know? And, and using it as a disguise to hide their sin, to justify their sin. And, and it may not look exactly like that for us, but we're, we're, we as humans in our nature, in our sin nature, we are professionals at justifying our sin. And man, God wants to come in. And he, he wants us to agree with him and go, no, that's evil, it's not good. It's bitter, it's not sweet. And it needs to go, it needs to go away. And after Jesus had done this in the temple, after he'd driven out those who were using the house of God in a way that he never intended it to be used, he, according to verse 47, remained in the temple and he daily taught the people who were gathered there together with him. And according to the other gospel accounts, when we pull all these events together, we see that he did other things at this time too. He healed the blind. He healed the lame who, who couldn't walk. He, he, he caused them to walk again. And however, all of these, these, these miracles that Jesus was doing at this time, it brought a twofold response, we're told, when we look at all the gospel accounts. The first was, is there were those, when Jesus came in and cleaned house, when Jesus came in and taught, when Jesus came in and did these miracles, there were those, according to Matthew 21, who praised him, saying, Hosanna, save now, we pray. We talked about that last week again. Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna to the king the king of kings. And then there were the others, these religious leaders who became indignant, right? How dare you come in here and clean up things and teach and heal people? They become indignant at the things that God was going to do as Jesus was restoring the things of God back to God. They became indignant and were told that they sought to destroy Jesus. They sought to get rid of him. You have no business here. But we know that his time, Christ's time, had not yet come, and they were unable to do anything to him. And in light of these verses which describe Jesus entering into the temple, in light of these verses that describe Jesus and what he did when he entered into the house of God and doing all the things that he had done in order to restore back to God the things that are God, I want to point out that these verses have tremendously profound application into our lives today when we consider the fact that we who have come to put our faith in Christ, we who have accepted Jesus' sacrifice, that, that we have put our faith in Jesus, that we've become, the Bible says, the house of God. It's mind-blowing. There's no longer a temple, a, a, a building, a structure on this earth where God says, I'm going to come and reveal my glory here. What God says, what Jesus said, is that we've become the temple, the house of God, the place where God, by his Holy Spirit, has now chosen to live inside of us. And when we understand that, we see the application. Remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 through 17, Apostle Paul writing to the Corinthians, it would be like um, they were a, a terribly carnal church at this time, given over to sin in sinful ways. Christians, 
who, who needed to be clean, cleansed, and, and he said, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? And he was kind of like, how can you be doing these things? How can you be walking in a holiness when you have the holy God living in you and with you? He says, if anyone defiles the temple of God, God's going to destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. In other words, he's saying, you're holy. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he goes on in a similar, similar tone with a similar wordage. He says in verse 19 to 20, he says, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Whom you have from God. And he says, and you're not your own. In other words, we've been purchased. We've been purchased literally by the blood of Jesus Christ. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, the precious blood of Jesus. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Guys, when we, when we gave our lives to Christ, when we said, yeah, I believe in you. I want you to be my Savior. There was this issue of lordship that we should have been confronted with. To say he's your Savior and not your Lord is not a truth. If he's your Savior, he must be your Lord. Because he bought us with a price. He purchased us. He redeemed us back. And he invites us to accept him as Lord and Savior. And as a servant is, the, is, is in submission to the master, we go, okay, your will be done, not mine. The point is, is God, listen, God wants, God deserves, and God expects. Okay, three things. He wants, he deserves, and he expects that we will be a holy house. A house of prayer and not a den for thieves. A house of prayer for him to dwell in so that he might be glorified through us. And in light of this fact, in light of the fact that, that we sin and that we become dirty by the things of this life, you know what we have to do? We've got to allow Jesus to come in. Jesus is the word of God. Amen? And when he was in the temple, he taught the word of God. And he brings the word of God into our hearts, into our minds. We must allow him to come daily in, into our lives, and to teach us, and to cleanse us. Or else we, we risk becoming this defiled temple that Paul writes about in the book of Corinthians. Listen to what Psalm 119, verses 9 through 12 says. It says, how can a living stone Calvary chapel man or woman cleanse their way? It says, young man. We're all young, right? How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. And then David goes into this, this, like this prayer, this, this expression to the Lord. He says, with my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander away from your commandments. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me. Teach me your statutes. So God desires a holy house. He desires a clean house to dwell in. And his word is what cleanses us. However, God also desires, he desires the same for us as a fellowship. Okay, it's individual first, it is. But it's also corporately as a church. He desires the same for us as a fellowship because we together make up the corporate body where God dwells and to ensure that we, the church, are walking in and pursuing holiness, we must be grounded in and be be built up by the word of God. Many members, one body, Christ as the head. 
Remember in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4-5, where we get our namesake, Livingstone Calvary Chapel, Peter wrote and he says, he says, Come to him as to a living stone. Coming to him as a living stone rejected indeed by men. And that's okay. Why? Peter goes on, because you've been chosen by God and you're precious. Come to him, coming to him as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. He says, you also, as living stones, are being built up. A spiritual house, a temple, a holy priesthood. We're holy priests. Why? So that we may offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So when we realize that the church is a spiritual house, a place where God dwells, in light of verse 46 where Jesus said God's house is to be a house of prayer, we should see that the church also needs to be a, we need to be a what? A house of prayer. We need to be a people of prayer. A house of prayer and not a den for thieves to hide behind the holy things of God. The point is, is when we come together in prayer, is a powerful thing. When we come together in prayer, it's a powerful thing which speaks out to those around us and testifies to the, this fact that God's with us. Go tell somebody that's not a believer that you work with, your neighbor. Go to your neighbor and go, you know what? I was at church today and I was talking to God. And, and God, God was talking to me. I hope God's talking to you. That's prayer. We're, we're talking to God and God's talking to us. If you go tell somebody that, that doesn't know that, doesn't understand that, their mind's going to be blown away. What are you talking about? Are you weird? Go take some medication. God's talking to you. The creator the, the, of, of all things, the almighty God is talking with you. He talks with us, and we talk to him. It's an awesome thing. It's a powerful thing, and that's what we're to be of and about. But being a house, house of prayer is really just the starting point. And, and Jesus examples that for us, not only by the words that he spoke here, but the things that he did. It's just the starting point because the, the church, a place where God dwells, also needs to be a place of healing. Healing needs to happen here. A spiritual hospital. And that's what Jesus did in the temple. He healed people. A place where lives are forever changed by the healing power of God, by the redemptive power of God. Remember when Jesus was in the temple in Matthew chapter 21, it tells us that he healed those who were in need. And the healings that take place, the healing that needs to take place within the church, in our church, is threefold. It is a physical healing. God wants to heal us physically of our ailments, of our diseases, of our injuries, these things. Pray to him. He wants to heal, he wants to heal us spiritually. He wants to heal us emotionally. And so the church needs to be a house of prayer. We need to be a house of prayer. We need to also be a place of healing, a spiritual hospital for those who, who need to be healed. And, and we, the church here, we must be a place where the power of God is to save is seen. We have to be. We must be a place where the power of God to save is seen. That's who Jesus is. That's what Jesus came to do. He was saving people in the temple. And the Apostle Paul testifies of this power of God to save in Romans chapter 1. And he says that, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. Let me say that again. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, who was born as an infant, lived a sinless life, who was arrested, betrayed, crucified on a cross, buried and rose again three days later, all so that we could receive forgiveness of sins. 
and eternal life for those who place their faith in him and receive that gift of grace from God. This is the power, this message, that act, that work is the power of God unto salvation. And we need to be a place where that message is being preached, where that work is being done. But sadly, this good news message of salvation of God through faith in Jesus Christ, guys, for the most part, in the world today, in the church today, it's not being preached by the church. It's not. God's word is not being taught, and the gospel message is not being preached. Because that message says that we're a sinner in need of a Savior. And that, that, that message of being a, sa- a sinner is not, not necessarily a very popular message. However, this message contains the only hope for mankind. And we, the church, who are these living testimonies, we, the church, we are the living testimony of the power of God unto salvation. I was lost, but now I'm found. I was condemned but now I'm innocent. I've been redeemed. I've been forgiven. I've become a new creation. These things, these transforming powers of God into our lives through the gospel message and the reception of it is a living testimony to the power of God to save. And we must always be ready to give a reason for the hope that we've received that's in us to those who have no hope. That's what needs to be going on here. We need to be telling people that a gracious God loves them, that a gracious God died on the cross so that their sins might be forgiven, and that all they have to do is repent and believe. Put their faith in Jesus as the Lord and confess with their mouths that he's the the only begotten Son, and they too will be saved. Guys, if we're not doing that, then why are we even here? And it doesn't have to be on the street corner or on on a soapbox. It can be just let me tell you what God's done for me. That's the miracle. So, so, so we, the church, are to be a house of prayer. We're to be a spiritual hospital. We're to be a place where the power of God to save is seen. And lastly, we, the church, being the place where God dwells, must be a place of praise. A people of praise. That's what was going on here. When people witnessed what Jesus was doing, there was a group who was praising Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. And the fact of the matter is, is that praise is responsive. It's responsive. It's not something that we manufacture up inside of us. Oh, I just want want to feel these feelings of praise and worship. It's responsive. It's it's something that comes naturally in our praise and, and worship of God is to be a reaction to who God is and to what God has done, and to what God is doing, and what God has promised. I mean, think about those things. Dwell on those things. You know what's going to happen? Praise of God is going to come forth. And remember, when the people gathered to Jesus, if we read in Matthew chapter 21, when he was in the temple, they praised God when he was in the temple, seeing these things, hearing what he was doing, looking forward to the promises he was speaking, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. And their praise was a response to the wondrous, to the righteous, and to the holy things that they had seen Jesus doing. And the fact of the matter is, is if we're not singing and proclaiming the praises of God, something that we've been designed to do, something that we've been created to do, singing 
and proclaiming the praises of God, you know what will happen is other things will begin to come onto our lips and into our mouth, into our heart. And usually what happens is when we're not proclaiming the praises of God, then the praise of man will fill our lips. And it's usually with the praise of self as it oozes from our mouth. Debbie, if you and the worship team want to come up, I'm going to end with reading this, Psalm 8. Psalm 8 says this. It says, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent your name is in all of the earth. It's praise. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all of the earth. You who have set your glory above the heavens, out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemies and the avenger. The psalmist goes on and he says this. He says, when I consider your heavens... The work of your fingers, the moon, and the stars which you have ordained. What is man that you're mindful of him? And the son of man that you visit him, for you have made him even a little lower than the angels, and you have yet crowned him with glory and honor, and you have made him to have dominion over the works of your hand, and you have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the airs, and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all of the earth. Church, it's when we, as a body, when we are a body, and when we, as a body, are a house of prayer, a house of healing, a house where people see and hear about the, the power of God, a, a, a place where the praises of God are being proclaimed, that we, that, 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 that people, when we're, this, when we're like this, when we're, when we're walking in this way, that this is when people will come together with us. You want to see God do a mighty work? Let's model that. And people will flock to be with us as we worship and praise the one who saved us. Let's pray. Will you stand? Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for today and this word, that you have been with us, that you are with us, that you're doing a good work in and through us and for us. And Father, if there's anything that is in our church as a body, as a congregation that doesn't need to be here, God, that is in us, I pray you would come in and drive it out. And the same true with our own hearts and our lives and our minds, God. We want to be a holy, a holy, a holy temple for you. We want to be a holy people for you. Lord, but we're weak and foolish, and apart from you, we can't change anything. So God, we invite you in. We invite you in to do the cleansing work that you need to do so that you may be glorified in and through us. Lord, we love you, and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray.